Hello, and welcome to this focus episode of How We're Wired. My name is Eva Higginbotham. I have a PhD in neuroscience, and I'm the producer of this series for the Bertarelli Foundation. These focus episodes are a chance for us to dig into more fascinating stories of our brains, how they work, and how scientists are studying them. In episode five, we took a peek into the minds of teenagers by looking at how the brain changes during puberty and adolescence, a period of life many of us will remember as being a bit tumultuous. For many young people, though, growing up also comes alongside serious changes to their mental health and well-being. So that's what I'm looking at this week, from important risk factors for mental health conditions to how brain imaging studies are shedding light on the neuroscience of different disorders, like schizophrenia. My journey started by taking me back to my hometown of Oxford to meet up with an old friend. That's him on the guitar, and we've known each other for a while. I still yeah. have a Christmas card you gave me uh, from like year seven or year eight or something. Is that the one that yeah. says l- lots of stuff? Yes. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. We settled into the living room of a cosy flat with trailing plants and artwork and bookshelves stuffed with books on the walls. Yeah, my name's Ben. I'm a musician, I like to play guitar, I like to do yoga, I like reading, I do a little bit of skateboarding and I like cooking. So yeah, in in the last kind of nine and a half years I've had four psychotic episodes and I've been sectioned once, spent three months in hospital. Um, Should I tell you a bit about kind of how it started? Yeah. So I was in my second year at university, I was studying music technology in in Falmouth and um, I was living on like a high street. It was basically really, really, really noisy and every morning we'd have like seagulls like barking. Yeah, I wasn't sleeping very well and all of a sudden this dark voice just kind of jumped into my head telling me that people wanted to like harm me and and kill me. And then I think the next day after this happened there was an instant where I left the flat that I was living at and I ended up going into the sea because I was trying to get away. I had voices telling me that like people wanted to harm me and I needed to escape. So this night, anyway, I jumped into the water and I swam this boat. And I had, I had voices in my head telling me to get away, and to get away, otherwise I wouldn't be safe. And then I kind of got on this boat and then I saw in front of me like a light, which must have been at least two or three hundred metres away. And the voices were going like, you need to swim towards it, you need to go there. And I saw the moment where I was like, I can't, like, if I did, if I did that, I would have drowned that night. So... I, I managed to swim back to the bank and then I stayed awake until the sun rose. And then I went back to my flat, phoned an ambulance, and then literally the next day my mum came and picked me up and took me back to Oxford. Ben ended up spending a difficult year at home, struggling with paranoia, but slowly recovering with medication. He was 21 when he had his first experience of what's called psychosis, essentially some loss of contact with reality. At 21, he was legally an adult, but many scientists don't consider the brain to have fully matured until about the mid-20s. And it is possible for people to experience serious mental health challenges when even younger. Hi, my name is Daniel Dickstein. I'm a pediatrician and child psychiatrist. I work at McLean Hospital in the greater Boston area where I'm head of child psychiatry. Dan didn't start off thinking he'd be a pediatrician, or a psychiatrist for that matter. But after his first year of medical school, he did an internship with the National Institute for Mental Health. 
that summer, I got a chance to work with kids struggling with really impairing things, things that I had honestly never heard of or had seen before. Some of them had the worst obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, struggling for hours a day with fixed thoughts in their head that they couldn't get out or behaviors they had to do again and again and again. Kids with the worst ADHD in the world, so impulsive, so hyperactive that their parents, their schools were at their wits end. Kids with childhood onset schizophrenia who were hearing and seeing things, people out to get them, people going to harm them. And they were massively impaired by those thoughts. They couldn't function in their families. I also was involved with doing brain imaging research in the early 90s. This was the early days of brain imaging being used for potential mental health research to discover the underlying brain structure. And I think that was the early glimmer of my saying that mental health plus research plus kids and families could be really cool, a real chance to contribute, to learn, to help, to make a difference. And so thinking of that then, how what is the scale of mental health conditions and mental health problems amongst kids and adolescents? I guess the word that first comes to mind, honestly, is it's huge. I mean, there are some data indicating that more than one in five kids may struggle with a mental health condition before age 18. And getting into proper care to figure out what disorder or disorders are going on, or is this just a phase? Is this just typical development? If it's not just typical development, how do you get somebody into treatment, whether it's medication, therapy, or other things, is a huge problem globally. Thinking about the neuroscience of mental health then, do we have a sort of, this is what a standard brain looks like, and then everything, these different conditions are a deviation from that, and is that quantifiable? So there are lots of people who have done work to look at brain development as you go from childhood to adolescence into young adulthood. You know, the most notable thing is that the National Institute of Mental Health scanned the same kids from childhood into adolescence into young adulthood and put these structural MRIs into essentially time-lapse movies so that for the first time ever, you could see the march of development in healthy kids' brains. And what you could see is essentially areas that are developmentally older. So at the back of the head and the bottom of the head around the bottom of your hairline start to develop. First, these are sort of parts of the brain that even snakes and other primitive animals have uh, all respect to snakes for not you know, they have their special <laughs> things but they are a little primitive and so from the back of the brain towards the front of the brain so the area around your forehead part of what's called the the frontal cortex or even the prefrontal cortex to so the extreme part of your head i guess essentially sort of three to four fingers above your eyebrows that's the part of the brain that developmentally evolutionarily is newest that's the part that primates probably have the most development areas that have to do with attention, executive function, otherwise known as planning and multitasking. Those are the parts of the brain that mature later. Dan explained that in some ways, that's how scientists explain adolescence. This time when you have a mismatch in maturity between the decision-making part of your brain and some bits that control some of our deepest thoughts and actions, like the amygdala, which we talked about in our memory episode and is involved in how we process fear and the striatum, which is crucial in both how we move our bodies and experience rewards, or, as Dan put it, helps translate thoughts into actions. These bits mature more quickly, 
which scientists think might be partly responsible for risky behaviour often seen in teenagers. As Dan told me, leaping before they look. And although that can be scary for parents, for most people, it's just a normal part of growing up. So what are some of the most common mental health conditions that you see in children? And do they tend to correlate with age? Do you tend to see more with a certain condition at a younger age and others at an older age? We definitely see certain things coming out at certain ages. So for example, as a group of disorders, anxiety disorders are probably the most common form of mental health condition. There are about 10 different types of anxiety disorder ranging from obsessive compulsive disorder, where you have sort of thoughts or ideas sort of stuck in your head that you might have to do something about cleaning, washing, redoing your homework, all the way to post-traumatic stress disorder, which has to do with how you handle responses to situations where your life might be threatened. So anxiety disorders as a, as a category, the most common thing affecting children, those often may manifest early toddlerhood to early school age. Then in school age, that's a time when often ADHD starts to cause problems. It may have started, parents may say, my kid is, is all over the place when they're a toddler. And certainly mm. part of being a toddler is that, but it may cause some problems as a toddler. But once you hit school age, that's really where the demands of life come sort of into a hard collision for some kids with their behavior, their ability to focus. And so you may see that sort of kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, later, more middle school, sort of slightly preteen to early teens, you start to see more depression. And then as you get to older adolescents, you may see more, at least classically, things like bipolar disorder or the presence of schizophrenia, both of which are quite rare, but they do happen. And so being aware that they may occur is important. So thinking about that in terms of causes, if we're seeing, you know, young children, toddlers, school age kids, and then young teenagers who are experiencing these different mental health disorders, does that then tell scientists something about where these come from, so to speak? So I definitely think that that's something that we're still trying to unravel. Why do certain disorders more commonly present at certain ages? But yeah, it does give you some clues about it, or some disorders may be more common in either males or females. So for example, you know, until age 10, anxiety and depression can occur in males and females pretty equally. Around age 10, you start to see a massive increase in the ratio of females to males who experience mm. depression. And while we don't 100% know the exact cause of that, a lot of people say, well, around age 10 is classically the start of menses. And so they suggest that this means there's a role for hormones in mood disorders like depression in a way that makes biological females at greater risk for depression. On the other hand, people also look at, for example, schizophrenia, where you may, again, hear or see things that are experienced as very disturbing people out to get you special messages from your electronics and uh, deciding that you just don't want to participate in things and having no emotional range. So schizophrenia classically is something that's thought of as primarily a, a male predominant illness, mm. although people are looking at that and suggesting that the initial peak of schizophrenia, which is classically kind of older teenagers to mid-20s, which is definitely male, looking carefully, there are other peaks of age when females can have schizophrenia. 
sort of in their mid to late 20s and even in their late 40s. People theorize that maybe the reason that the males have the earlier peak again may be that initial protective effect actually of estrogen and progesterone, the female Mm. hormones of adolescence. Around 1% of the US population is thought to have schizophrenia, which can start as young as under 13, but that is extremely rare. People with schizophrenia tend to go through phases of relapse and remission of their symptoms. And that's been Ben's experience. After a year out to recover from his first episode, he managed to go back to uni and finish his degree. And then I went on a trip to Morocco with some friends. And when I was there again, basically another episode started. And when I came home, I was incredibly paranoid again. Um, I was really sensitive to sounds. I thought people were spying on me. A few months after that, I ended up getting sectioned because I was so unwell. Um, And I spent three months in hospital. Weirdest experience ever, to be honest. Like, just, I was unwell, but the people who were in that, like, some people were so unwell. And it's just quite a surreal experience just being in this building filled with other people with serious mental health problems. Researchers have found that the neurotransmitter dopamine, which is strongly associated with the reward and attention systems in the brain, seems to play a significant role in psychosis along with another neurotransmitter, glutamate. But what about changes to the brain structure itself? So one of the most common things in terms of brain imaging is people talk about having enlarged ventricles. In plain English, in your head, in your skull, obviously you have the brain, but there are also normal holes that everybody has that allow the circulation of spinal fluid to cushion and to nourish and to help the brain. That spinal fluid then goes out the back of your head, down your spinal cord and things like that. So the holes where that spinal fluid is produced and circulate, those are called ventricles. And in schizophrenia, one of the most reliably shown issues with brain imaging is, as I said, enlarged ventricles. Why do you care if normal holes in your head are bigger? You care because since your skull is only so big, if the holes are bigger, that means you have less of the other brain substance, the other brain structures by definition. And that's where the problem comes in. People are working now to sort of figure out when do those ventricles become big? Is that something that all of a sudden turns on like a light switch in, you know, X number of years before the illness manifests? Mm. We don't currently know that. Other things that people have with schizophrenia that have been shown by research So schizophrenia, in terms of a cognitive perspective, besides hearing and seeing things and being sort of flat and not participating in things, research has shown that adults with schizophrenia have impaired working memory or your ability to learn new facts and use them. So an example of working memory would be if I tell a person, hey, tomorrow you have an appointment with so-and-so and this is the person's address. And this is how you get there, how you can use that information tomorrow to navigate, to get to the person's office, the right spot, the right time. That's working memory, or at least an example of it. Mm. Schizophrenia in studies across the world have impaired working memory. And some people theorize that that may be why schizophrenia of all the mental health conditions has the highest rates of homelessness and joblessness Mm. that 
a lot of the stuff that we take for granted, schizophrenics really struggle with that. Of course, another thing that can be very difficult for people diagnosed with schizophrenia is dealing with the stigma. I don't mind. I don't mind using the word. Yeah. Um, I don't mind. Um, well, the only the only thing is obviously it's got. If you say you're schizophrenic, there's some people might judge you and think that you're you know not normal or you know the stereotypes that come with the word schizophrenia. Mm. I kind of try and make a point of talking about my me- like my mental health problem to people because I think you can still get judged quite easily. Uh, in 2016, I started working at a retail shop, and people there discriminated against me because of my mental health problem. And I talked to them about it quite openly, and they they basically were quite judgmental and kind of thought I was inverted commas like crazy kind of thing. So. Yeah, so that affected my life because it's like, oh no, should I tell people that I'm unwell? Or so this this place they they had very old-fashioned views and that kind of shows that more needs to be done. When I look out through my window, I see a lot of things. For children and young people, one of the most common problems is anxiety. Although some level of anxiety is thought to be good, like being a bit nervous before a test or excited before going to meet someone new for the first time, Dan said anxiety can tip over into being concerning if the anxiety is sustained and gets in the way of the child's normal functioning and behaviour. Much of the research sort of focuses on the amygdala and also I think the frontal cortex, which has a lot to do with how you pick and choose what you get upset about, what you don't get so upset about, how do you weigh the evidence of the likelihood of certain things. And so those are the brain areas people think about. I think in terms of anxiety, the most common neurotransmitter people think about is serotonin, which again is involved with both of these brain areas we talked about. And I think a lot of people are working on different kinds of not just medication treatments for anxiety, but they're also working on, especially I'd say the last 10 years of renewed focus on exposure and response prevention therapy, which in plain English has a lot to do with essentially acknowledging that some things are triggers of anxiety will make us scared. How do we face those and how do we put kids, teens and adults closer and closer next to the feared anxiety triggering response for longer and longer periods of time so that the person can realize that they survived. It did cause some fear, but the world still spins, the sun still rises. And by putting them in proximity to the feared situation, people start to get better. Whether that's being away from parents, what's called separation anxiety, or whether that's, you know, worry about your future from tests, from achievement, from peer scrutiny, which might be more commonly part of something called generalized anxiety disorder. So the treatment for anxiety is not just necessarily medication. It's also therapy putting you closer and closer to the feared trigger. And another common concern is depression, which actually can present slightly differently in kids and teens than in adults. Research does show that kids, even young kids, young school-age kids can experience depression, that by and large, the symptoms of feeling bad about yourself and not enjoying things 
and feeling sad are pretty much the same in kids, teens, and adults. So there's not necessarily different symptoms. I think the one thing that is different is that in childhood, kids can not just be down, blue, or sad, depressed. They can also be irritable and angry. So in the States, that is an age-specific, a child-specific modification to the the criteria, the rules of what is major depression, which is basically two weeks or more depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day, accompanied by changes in sleep, interest, eating, and uh, maybe even thoughts about suicide. In the States, using the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, for children, the mood can also be irritable. Although we're all familiar with feeling irritated, in psychiatry, irritable sort of means like feeling angry and frustrated, often over seemingly small things. And I think the second point that's important is the importance of creating space to find out about what's going on with your kiddo. There, there's data even to show that families who make time to talk about you know, to have a meal together without electronics, to create the space to actually share some genuine feelings that's super important because then as a parent or somebody taking care of kids or even schools and teachers in certain situations, kids can actually use their voices to say, what are they excited about? What are they concerned about? What are they starting to engage in that might be unsafe or concerning? We have to create time and space to sort of share our emotional content and what's going on. And, you know, with those two points in mind, unfortunately, and this may come as a shock to some of your listeners, suicide is the second leading cause of death in the States, starting at age 10, all the way up to age 34. So it's not just adults who unfortunately end their lives. You know, even school-age kids are doing this. For Dan, this highlights the fact that scientists and researchers need to pull together to get better at diagnosing and treating young people. And importantly, increase accessibility to good treatments with trained professionals too. But is there a way of predicting which kids are more likely to face these problems in the first place? So risk factors for developing mental health conditions, you know, the most common one is first-degree relatives who have a history of it. That's true of any kind of medical condition, whether it be high blood pressure or other things, but that certainly does contribute. But most of our mental health conditions are not just one gene, one problems. They're far more complicated than that. Schizophrenia is probably one of our most heritable illnesses. And you do, if you have one parent, you have an increased risk. If you have two parents with schizophrenia, you have even more risk. But not all children, even of both parents with schizophrenia, end up having schizophrenia. And I think that's an important message for adults with mental illness to be aware of because for me as a clinician and researcher, a lot of times parents come with a lot of guilt. Did I do this? Did I do this to my kid? Because I have this, have I now given them this, the same thing? And the answer is no, you contributed to risk, but you know, there are a lot of other things that go into who does and doesn't have an illness, things that we're still learning about. Other risk factors that we know about early life stress is certainly a risk factor for lots of mental health conditions. So not just the blatant examples of physical abuse, sexual abuse, but, you know, even experiences that may be interpreted as emotional neglect, people being less available for their kids or being in a high conflict environment, high conflict divorce where parents are engaged in yelling or physical altercations with one another or, 
or over children. That's certainly a risk factor for mental health conditions. Substance use is certainly a risk factor, both because of what substances may do to adults' behavior, making them more disinhibited, more likely to do risky things or to be violent or volatile, but also sometimes just the exposure of the agents on the developing brain of the child may may also cause those things, whether in utero or even after the child is born. So I guess the good and the bad news is there are lots of different risk factors. I think for parents, the hope is just like, you, you know, we hope the best for most parents that they provide the best environment they can and do their best as parents to the extent that they know about risk factors for mental illness, whatever they can do to, in some ways, try to minimize those while also trying to increase things we know boost resilience, right? So spending time with with your children, helping them read and develop language at an early age, but, you know, reading to children is something that stimulates cognitive growth and development. And across most cultures, you know, one's ability with language really is the gateway into so many other opportunities. So that's something that can be helpful. Creating time to listen to kids, understand what's going on with them. How are they doing? How are they feeling? You know, do they feel like they have friends? Are there things that parents can do to encourage those interests to help kids discover who they are on their own and in relation to their peers? So like many things, I think it's it's, it's a balance between knowing the risk factors and doing what you can to modify them and knowing the things for resilience and doing what you can to amplify those. The good news is that with a renewed focus on mental health for scientists and doctors, we now have a lot more tools at our disposal than in years past. Dan said there's a lot of data showing that cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT, can be really effective for young people getting stuck in anxious or depressive thought loops. And there's data showing that for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, usually reward-based behaviour modification, i.e. more carrot, less stick, is better for their learning. And for Ben, he's found some satisfaction in his own recovery, too. It's, it's strange because... I, I remember each episode pretty well and now I'm in a good place. I've been in a good place and I've recovered from other episodes before and I look back and I go, oh my God, I can't believe I thought that, you know, people were spying on me or people were doing this or people were doing that. It's quite liberating as well, actually, kind of recovering, especially this time from recovering from my fourth one. This year I, I thought people could read my thoughts and people were, like, following me and stuff and when, when I actually got to the point where I realised, actually, no, they're not, there's nothing there, it's just me. It's quite liberating. I think when I've recovered, it's been through things like yoga, meditation, I think exercise, like skateboarding was quite a big one for me. Are there other things that you found that really help you? I think recently reading has been a really, really, really good distraction, especially when hearing voices. So if you're reading a book and you're like getting into it, kind of it distracts your brain, you're you're actively reading. I found it really helpful to deal with hearing voices. Certain self-help books have been absolutely amazingly helpful. And I'm wondering what your hopes for the future? What would you like to happen next? Um, I think I think I want to carry on studying. So I'm I'm going to I've got I managed to get my degree. Um, I just want to keep playing music, keep doing gigs, keep trying to live the dream and get out there I don't know like things like travelling and yeah living trying to just enjoy life 
thanks so much to Daniel Dickstein for his insights and to Ben Jacobs for sharing his story and his music with us. That's it for this week's Focus episode. Join us in two weeks' time as we consider how we move, with a visit to a paralysed man using implanted tech to walk and a discussion with a scientist researching how our brains control our bodies. I'm Eva Higginbotham, and this is How We're Wired. This has been a Fresh Air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode.